Hi everyone and welcome back to episode three of Playing the System. Today I'm delighted to be joined by a very old friend of mine, Paul Nataraj, who I have not spoken to or seen for 20 years. What is astonishing about this is we met at the University of Westminster 20 years ago and we're friends. And then we've both gone off on our own life journeys and not spoken for 20 years and ended up in very similar places. Paul is a sound artist. He's a deep cultural and critical thinker. I have his wonderful album here called Cobblestones and Kichari. Paul has a PhD that he, I think, titled... You sound like a broken record. <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, I'm sure many people <laughs> may say that about me. And Paul has just started an incredible podcast called Kick Down the Barriers. So in this episode, we talk about creativity and the creative act against a very different political climate since 2016. We talk about unleashing the creativity of limitation and we talk a lot, or Paul talks a lot, about the inspirations behind his record, Music Concrete, and I've written them down in my trusty field notes notebook, Nilan Mizak, Christian Malaki, and William Burroughs and his cut and paste techniques. I'm going to ask Paul as well to make a playlist that accompanies this episode so we can check out some of these inspirations for ourselves. And throughout the episode, Paul has also allowed us to use his music wherever we feel appropriate. So there's going to be Paul's music all throughout the episode. So I hope you enjoy it. I love talking to Paul. And fundamentally, I would say that Paul is a really positive and lovely man. So thanks for coming back for episode three. Delighted to have you on board and enjoy the ride. Okay, cool. Welcome to Play in the System, episode three. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Paul Nataraj, who is firstly a long-term friend who I haven't seen until now for 20 years. And this is absolutely incredible. But most importantly, Paul is here because he's a sound artist, he's a deep thinker, he's a cultural resonator, and... A brilliant, brilliant 
person to speak to. So we caught up yesterday before this to have a kind of preamble that obviously lasted two hours. It was amazing. I kind of wish I'd recorded it, but I've every confidence we're going to do the same today. So welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It means so much to me. And I found this just before this last minute um, interview I read. And I don't know why I was reading this because I wasn't supposed to be. And uh, I thought I'd read it out because it resonates so much with our with our stories. Now, um, the question is, where in my phone did I see it and can I find it? It was an, an, an Orteca interview. And uh, I might have to cut a little bit out of this while I find it because it is really worth reading out. It's, no worries, it's, yeah. Uh, it, oh, here we go. I found it. So, yeah, this is in the New York Times today. And, uh, and this is what it said. Physicists have verified a phenomenon called quantum entanglement in which particles separated by great distances somehow exhibit perfectly matching behaviour. Isn't that amazing, amazing, right? Because what we identified yesterday was despite not having seen each other or spoken for 20 years, we got married within a week of each other in 2013 and we've ended up doing very, very similar things. So I, I love that quote and I thought, you know, that really sums it up. So yeah, yeah welcome to the show. Thank you for agreeing to do it. Now, we kind of jumped straight off, didn't we, even before we pressed record, and we were talking about your very snazzy microphone yeah. and your very unsnazzy pop shield and the fact that that is probably the only professional piece of audio you own. And you were, you were telling, we were talking about the creative limitations that come from that. So how do you find creativity in these limitations? Uh, well... Yeah, so the microphone is a beautiful thing, right? And uh, I acquired it. And actually, everything that I've got, I've acquired. I don't think I've actually bought any piece of equipment. <laughs> Sounds like you've nicked it, Paul. <laughs> uh, that's, that's like a really nice way of putting it. But uh, no, I, you know, I, I, do, I do. I kind of just uh, accumulate stuff. Um, and yeah I can't I, then I make the most out of it or, or I try at least to make the most out of it um and I think that's it it absolutely 100 percent uh changes the way in which I work but it also is definitely part of the sounds that I create you know mm. um because mm. the majority of stuff that I've ever done I've worked from samples so I'm not really I'm not a player like I'll put that out there straight away. I'm not a player, so I work from samples, and in the main, everything that I've tried to do up until this point has been from samples that people have given me or that I've acquired. So that's another little constraint. I try not to be a person who chooses something because I think I he goes out there and goes, you know what? I really love this, so I'm going to use it. I find it from people and then I try mm. and manipulate it into something that I think sounds good. So mm. that's mm. that's definitely part of the creative process for me. Um, yeah. And in a way, working in the box for a long time in terms of kind of either on Logic, I've done quite a lot of stuff actually on Adobe Audition simply because I come from a radio background and that was kind mm. of a really simple editing program that we always used to work with. And then I kind of thought, you know what, I can do something with this which is a little bit outside of um, just chopping voices up or doing mm. the radio stuff. Um, and what I kind of found from that and uh, I'm sure a lot of sound people will 
uh, kind of agree with this is that if you're working in the box you, it's there's a limitation on the way something sounds and actually the air of a room um getting stuff out of the out of the box and onto a material um is really important i think so with the last record that i did the cobblestones and kitchery record um or tape um that very one yeah um so basically a, a lot of the stuff on there is is um recorded back out onto tape just uh, very simple cassette tapes uh, and then played through this another thing that i acquired actually which i found in a cupboard at college which was a a, a 1970s kuma um tape player that they probably used to record like assemblies or whatever um and i just played everything through tapes back out into this microphone um just to give everything some air but essentially i'm always working within the computer first of all and then trying to send stuff back out to try and get a bit mm. of roughness and i think that's the other mm. thing about not having a lot of equipment i don't have racks of stuff um, I mm. don't have lots of processing, so I'm, and I'm happy with roughness. I like roughness. Mm. I like roughness, mm. and I like dynamics, and I and I like the fact that everything's not mastered to to its, you know, to its breaking point, or or everything's really fat. You know, this this mm. fatness mm. thing or this loudness thing. I kind of like the fact that things are, can be quiet, and that's all right, uh, or mm. don't really pump. And that's okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I like that kind of the the feeling of of the material, but the feeling of the 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 roughness and things just not being as they should be. Let's put it that way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So, you know, nothing's mastered as such. Yeah, you know, uh, we. I think when I sent the stuff to Graham, who put the record out on, on Fractal Meat, uh, Graham Dunning, he said, shall I just do a little master on it? I said, look, man, you can do what you want to it. It's, it's absolutely fine. And, you know, I'm kind of not precious about that stuff particularly as well, you know, um, mm -hmm. because I think you can overthink that. And I also think it sometimes can stop you from finishing something. Mm. You know, mm. I think there's, this, there's, a, there's a process of abandonment when you kind of go mm. right, what what am I actually trying to say with this thing? Mm. Yeah, and have I said it? Mm. And if I've said it, do I really need to niggle with it even mm. more to mm. make it say something else? And emotionally, mm. and I, a lot of the time, I don't think you do. But mm. you know, I, perhaps people might turn around and say, "Oh, well, that's you being lazy." I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a brilliant record, and uh, it's a record I keep coming back to. I've, like many people, kind of turned my back on Spotify, and I, I, ha I still have a Spotify subscription. But I've really, like a lot of creatives, gravitated towards Bandcamp as a much fairer system for us makers. But most importantly, rather than fairness, what I believe it offers is a belonging, a community. I like belonging on Bandcamp. I feel part of it. I don't feel part of Spotify. You know, it's like I have been fortunate that some of my productions have had New Music Friday, and that does feel great. But there's something about Bandcamp and the community there. And that's where I found you'd made a record. I didn't know you made records. I knew you as a DJ and I knew you were into hip hop 20 years ago. Mm. 
and uh, God knows what you knew me as 20 years ago. <laughs> but um, we weren't particularly in the same space. And then when I found you made this record, I, you know, I listened to it and fell in love with it. And um, this morning I was listening to the, um, the track... Um, which one was I listening to? Yeah, because the track names are fairly abstract, aren't they? Yeah, they can be, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think it was You Know Him So Well. Oh, yeah, Is that yeah, yeah. really drony? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cosmic-sounding track. It's a very... <clears throat> it's a fascinating record, and I'm interested by the intention. What was the intention of of the maker what were you intending the listener this is what i thought it sounds like a very personal record yeah but a very abstracted record and and a lot of what um mark fisher calls hauntology which yeah. i'm sure you've come across yeah 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 it put me in a very interesting place and i was wondering when i was listening to it what was your intention for the listener that's really that I, well wow what a question man what a question yeah um I don't know if um, I kind of have that thought process before I start doing something. And I think mm. that that comes from the fact that um, I've never really made anything that's been particularly commercially viable. D does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. So actually I'm not considering that when I start to make mm. something. I'm considering mm. what what really I know this might sound again selfish or whatever but I'm considering what I want to do and I'm considering mm. what sounds good to me in terms of let's take that track for example you know him so well so that track uh the whole album's about my dad right mm. so my dad passed away in 2013 and from that point I was making bits and pieces of stuff what I kind of realized was that everything that I was doing was in some way related to, to him. So all the sounds that I was using, the samples that I was using, the things that I was finding were, were all re somehow related to him. Um, and so that just became like the, the, the go-to for everything that I made. So You Know Him So Well is by Barbara Dickinson and Elaine Page, right? Mm. And uh, he loved it, right? Yeah. Uh, and he also lived, loved Simply Red. So there's a load of Simply Red stuff on there as well. Now, you, and this is kind of the point of what I try and do, which is I would never in a million years, right? I mean, Simply Red could not be further from my mind when I think of you. Yeah, well, exa exactly. And that's exactly but, it, right? But so my mum was a massive... Si yeah. I, I would never choose to sample a Simply Red song, ever. Yeah. And that record's got two. Right, ah, that's amazing. I would never ever think to sample uh, Elaine Page. Right, it would yeah. it just never come up. Anyway, so I'm thinking to myself, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what what songs was he into, me dad? And he loved Elaine Page. Anyway, I've got a bunch of records stashed away, stuff that I've just bought from charity shops for nothing. And I go through these records and I find the Barbara Dickinson record. And I go, you what? How have I got that? First of all, yeah. and then secondly, I think, what well. well I'm going to use it. What am I going to do to it or with it? Uh, how do I remember it? And that's the key. So right. everything on that record is my kind of uh, way of sonically remembering what I've heard in the past, places that I've been, 
Um, and it's that kind of movement between this, I suppose, a way of audio testimony, but the way that in which we move between sonic memories over time and how those mm. degrade, how they change, and how your relationship to those sonic memories changes over time. And actually, I suppose, if you want to go back to your question of the listener, it's about mm. having the listener experience the degradation of memory, the, fragil- the fragility of memory, Uh, And the fragility and the uh, movement in perception of sound, even though you might turn around and say, you know what, I really love this song. Well, 20 years later, you might not love it. Mm. And the way that you remember it is going to be completely different to to what it actually is, right? So um, in the process of making, let's, you know, going back to I Know Him So Well, what I'm thinking about is my dad's love of that song I'm thinking about my memory of him loving it, what that means to me. Mm. And I'm also thinking about how that song can become my a, a vehicle to my grief in some way, right? Mm. A vehicle mm. for me to express to him through that song, through manipulation, uh, my memory of him listening to it, mm. right? Yeah. So, uh, and and the way that I did that in that song was to play the record uh, and manipulate it on a turntable really, really slowly. So instead of pressing play on the record, I literally turned it with my finger manually. And, uh. and, and that then gives me the material to work with because actually that slowness is really important. I know Jem Finer did a piece of work where he slowed a record right down and he's got the, you know, so a record would last for four hours or something. And actually there's something really interesting there about um, kind of pulling out all all these strings of sonic material, which are there, definitely there, but you don't yeah. get hold of without kind of getting your hands on something. And I suppose that's the other part of kind of the, my process is that I'm interested in materiality and especially the materiality of records. So I've done a lot of work with that. So, getting so what would older, you say that is? What is materiality? Well, in, in terms of the record, I suppose um, it's the actual material of the record and the... the the physicality of that medium, right? Mm-hmm. And what that then affords us. And I think that the, especially with the record, it's often seen as being very static. Here's a bit of plastic, you put it on, you can't do anything with it. Oh, you can put something into a digital sphere and you can chop it to pieces, you can reverse it, you can do all this stuff. And actually what Hip Hop DJ showed us was that the record isn't static at all. Mm. It, it's 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 absolutely manipulable in whatever sense, and you can play with yeah. it and make new new work out of it. And experimental turntablists, Maria Chavez, um, Shiva Fesharecki, um, Yannick Schaefer, uh, Christian Marclay, all these guys uh, have kind of shown us uh, that the record is 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 extremely uh, pliable. And, and an interesting material, like physical material to work with. Um, and on 
uh, and on cobblestones in Kitchener, I'm kind of playing with some of the ideas that I came up that that I worked with with my PhD, really, which is to take a record and chop it into pieces, and literally do that. You know, it's kind of funny. So when you talk about DJs cutting, cut up the record, man, cut it up, right? So me being kind of simple-minded to to whatever degree, I went all right. Then I'll cut it up. I'll, li- yeah. I'll, I'll literally cut it up, uh, or scratch it. All right, then I'll scratch it, but I'll not scratch yeah. it with a you know vinyl needle. I'll scratch it with uh, a leather worker's tool and and see what I get out of it. So yeah, um, so it's playing with the physicality of something. I think, and and I think that's another thing for me is uh, I, I consider myself to be quite playful and not particularly serious. Uh, well, yeah, serious in many ways. <laughs> But playful, yeah. playfully serious, if that makes sense, yeah. you know, kind of yeah. uh, try, trying to explore things through play, through playing with them, mm. um, you know, um, and I think that's really important sometimes, you know, um, because mm. it takes you in interesting directions, uh, that playfulness. It's fascinating that we, you know, we have reached so many similar conclusions through different pathways. I went to Ableton Loop Festival in 2015, I don't know if you know Ableton Loop, but um, obviously we know Ableton as a software manufacturer. Mm. But what they're so brilliant at is recognising that software is really more about community than about necessarily the kind of mechanics of the software. So what Ableton Loop sets out to do is just bring together creatives from all over the world. And they bring educators together, they bring musicians, coders, and... I can tell that they really understand the power of that. And I came away, I was very lost when, before I went there, creatively. I'd really lost my mojo, lost my kind of purpose, lost it all. I'd done a lot of very high-profile adverts and that had just destroyed me because right. I have never got into doing music to do music for commercials. <laughs> and I had this kind of Nietzschean moment of like, here lies Matt Goodison you know, the Gordon Comstock of modern advertising. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? This is just so not what I go into music for. And I went off to Ableton Loop, which uh, the University of Westminster sent me. And I came away and in the centre of my page, in massive letters, I just wrote the word play. Mm. And I thought that is exactly what I've lost. I've lost the joy and the ability to recognise play mm. as a central role in what I do. Because when you're composing adverts under extreme time pressure for huge sums of money it's just stressful so you're not going to get you know your your leather man out and stab a record and record that because you don't feel like there is time Mm. and that was the beginning of the rebuilding for me of you know coming to the place i am now and working with david shepherd and you know getting to modular synths and tapes and remembering to play so Mm. funny again we've ended up in in the same place and you you know you have a project as well called you sound like a broken record is that a project yeah well that was my phd work basically yeah that was your phd yeah 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 so you could call it a project (laughs) a massive one yeah it was it was a massive one it was a brilliant one and and you know that's kind of where the all this stuff started um uh well it's you know I think what happened was, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but um, I was really into hip-hop, like crazy into hip-hop. And um, I met a guy when I was working at Blackburn College. I've always taught in FE. I, was, I met this uh, guy, he's called Brian Nicholson. He's absolutely, like, he's a genius dude, right? Just brilliant. I love him to bits. 
and uh, he, he, we were talking about hip hop one day, and he was, and he turned me on to William Burroughs, and he was like, "Well, what these guys are doing, this cut and paste collage stuff, is Bur- Bur- Burroughs, you know, he he was doing this with with literature, but he also did it with tape, um, you know, and from Burroughs." From Brian talking to me about Burroughs, I ended up kind of getting on a road which sent me down the music concrete route um, because obviously Schaefer was working with tape and chopping tape up and all that stuff. So, um, and that was the introduction, I suppose, to kind of more experimental music and uh, playing with sound, um, Mm. you know. at a similar time, I started my MA, and uh, on my MA, uh, I did it with a, a woman called Professor Tara Brabazon, and it was called Creative Media. Now, mm. the beautiful thing about that MA was that she was really open to outcomes. So we did a lot of pedagogical work in terms of media literacy. We did a lot of work on kind of um, city imaging, you know, understanding the places where you are. She did two units on sonic media and that introduced me to the book. I know you've been, you've seen this book, Audio Culture Book, yeah? Mm. Uh, And a lot of Christoph Cox stuff. So she introduced me to all that and the writing and the kind of conceptual side of sound Mm. art, let's say. So thinking about sound as an artistic medium, thinking about sound as an artistic practice, I suppose, as a parallel to music making, right? And that really resonated with me for coming from a, a radio background as well because I think uh, sometimes there's um, um, delineations between disciplines and I didn't ever see that, you know? Mm. Um, and I kind of never saw my... I, I think sound is sound and you work with sound. Sometimes you work with it kind of in musical terms. Sometimes you work with it in... in interview terms like we're doing now Mm. sometimes you work with it in terms of field recording or whatever and she really i mean the stuff that she was giving us to think about really turned me on to that um which was really interesting i think and that kind of process led me to christian marclay and another guy called milan nizak i don't know if you've ever heard of milan nizak milan nizak was a fluxus artist um i think he's hungarian um, I might be wrong about that, but I'm, I, th- I think he is. And he did this series called The Broken Records. And basically he was picking up records, he was burning them, he was breaking them into pieces, he was drawing all over them or whatever. And he did these these uh, kind of abstract uh, pieces of work with broken records. So, which, which is all cool, really, really cool. So I started to think about my relationship with the record and I kind of started to mm-hmm. think about, you know, what, what, what would I do if somebody did that to one of my records <laughs> <laughs> one of your prize you know so the fi- the 50 quid uh i don't know like bob marley first edition of catch a fire if someone took that and started scrolling all over it what what would i think and i also kind of thought about this idea and again it kind of goes back to the same c- concept of sound changing over time you know, and the memory of sound changing over time and your relationship to these things changing over time and how they affect your identity at a certain time, which is kind of interesting because I'm talking to you 20 years down the line and you go, 
Paul, uh, when yeah. I met you, your identity was your hip hop DJ with all these records doing whatever you were doing, and and there's a very distinct scratching, um, yeah, scratching, <laughs> but in a different way, right? I've never changed. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a very distinct, uh, I think, link between the materials that we collect, yeah. And our identity musically, the things that we are into, the way that we value those things. And I think the other question that came up for me quite, um, which was quite important, was this idea that I was teaching a lot of 16-year-old kids at the time. They were all on Spotify or on YouTube. And my question was to them, how, do you, how will you tell your kids what you listen to? Are you going to mm. share a playlist with them? How are they going to find these things if YouTube doesn't exist when you're 40, right? Mm. Where where does all this stuff go that you're collecting in an online way? Do you care that you're paying for something and not actually getting anything for it, like as in the the thing? And I've heard you talk about this as well, you know, getting something, unboxing it, you know, the smell of it, all that stuff, mm-hmm. all those mm-hmm. sens- sensory kind of inputs that you get with a, with a, a physical object um, mm-hmm. have, have got massive impacts on the way in which you then... Um, appreciate the music that comes from those things and there's a and i think there's also like a real mystery in that with vinyl you know it's like how is this how is this work is this working i know yeah and it's that going back to the kind of air language of music you know this is um a groove that's read by a needle that when you look at it you know that there's some sound there it's the absolute um truest representation of us of a sound in a material form and there's something really interestingly mysterious about that that Mm. um that i just wanted to explore really and and so it's Mm. kind of this this connection between the sound the material the object the person their story um how they relate to it but also um this kind of political angle, I suppose, where the record is the unit of, or has been for a long time, the unit of uh, of sale. Yeah. How many how many records did you sell? You know, you mm-hmm. go to a shop and you buy it. Is it's the unit of the mechanization of the industry is to sell records, right? And yeah, and we and we've seen that kind of coming back round with record store day and all that stuff where you're charging. You know, I went in the record shop the other day and there was a an, uh, an ODB uh, from the Wu-Tang 12-inch that came out on Record Store Day. It's got three tracks on it and it was 25 quid, you know? And you kind of go, all right, there's something happening here in terms of the way that the industry now values this stuff and how it's marketed and all that. And again, it's, you know, so this movement uh, in terms of value not not just um, ca- capital value, monetary value of objects, but how we value them, you know, mm. and why do we keep them and how do we relate to them over time. So the project, basically, I got 14 random people um, through different channels and I spoke to them about their story with, with that particular record. Um, and then I took that record off them and I carved the story of 
them and the record back onto the surface of the record and then I used that as material to make the, the songs from to make the pieces from and, and the, their story became the muse for the pieces that I made so whatever it was that they particularly were talking about the feeling that I got from sitting and talking to them was the thing that I used alongside the broken fractured material from the records and again mm. kind of go back to the beginning it's about constraint it's about what can I do with this awful stuff because actually if you played it to a hip-hop DJ and you went sample that mate you know they'd be like you what, mate? What are you talking about? That's noisy and ugly and awful and yeah. horrible. And it, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be using stuff that sounds like that. So the challenge to me then is to make that into something as beautiful as the stories that I was told, or as fractured mm. as the stories that I was told. So, uh, so yeah, that that was that was basically where that comes from. And I think a lot of the ideas uh, that are in that work or came from that worker are still very relevant in the cobblestones and kitchery work it just mm. so happens that th that works about me you know my family and the work that i did for sound like a broken record was about was very much about those people and i think the other thing about that is that i always try I mean, you never can as the artist. You're the artist. You're intervening. You, you know, you're mm. making your um, your experience and the things that you know and the things that you do are very much a part of the work that you make. You can't separate yourself from that. But um, what I try and do is to give distance to that as much as much as I can, and that's through the process of constraint. You know, saying, mm. "Okay, mm. I, I'm going to try and make the most out of these things that are around me." Uh, and try and make them speak in a different way. I think it was it Walter Benjamin who said who talks about making the apparatus work in a different register. You know, so mm. and that's very much a part of kind of what um, what I'm trying to do. Yeah, great. So, and I also listening to the records. There's parts of your dad talking, and he's talking about his patients. So your dad was a doctor. Yeah, yeah, that's Is that correct. Right. Yeah, 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 and I did. I wondered, I wondered about your relationship with your dad because obviously you didn't go down the doctor route. You've gone down a very different route. And I was wondering what your relationship with him was like and whether part of him being a doctor encouraged you to also become a doctor. Because uh, you've done your PhD, so you're now Dr Paul Nataraj. Yeah, yeah. Is that correct? That's correct. But yeah. a very different kind of doctor. Yeah, yeah a very different one. <laughs> so did you have a harmonious relationship with your dad or was it turbulent with these forces of, of you deciding to do no, a very different all. path? It, it, was, it, was, it was never turbulent. I think he worried about me, mm. but I think all parents worry about their, their, um, uh, their, their kids, don't they? Um, and because it took me a long... It I've got to say, Matt, right, it took me a long time to get going, right? And it took mm. me a long time to kind of figure out what it was that I was trying to do and what it was that I was trying to be. And, and I, you know, and no one really ever figures that out particularly, do they? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, I think that's an ongoing thing. But the hip-hop thing was about identity for me. It was really important to me in terms of being a mixed-race person from Blackburn and trying to find things within the media that kind of resonated or spoke to me in some way. 
um, because there was nothing on telly uh, at that point. There was no real music. The only music that that we kind of knew um, was pop music, but or Bollywood music. There was kind of nothing in between. There was nothing talking to that experience, apart from hip hop. Um, so that was kind of interesting um, in terms of, but I, but I knew that I was never a hip hopper. Do you know what I mean? Right. I was because I, I never naturally kind of could express myself through that thing. I really loved it, but I knew that there was kind of something else that I was trying to say. That's interesting because I saw you as the quintessential hip hop. <laughs> Someone whose whole fibre and soul resonated to the sound of hip hop. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it did. But I think it's it's that kind of process, the creative process, I think, you know, so there was people around us at that time who were making hip hop and who were really brilliant at it. Like mm. genuinely amazing, like made really stunningly amazing music, which um, is has got cult following to this day and people love it and it's seen as being, uh, a, you know, a turning point in the UK hip-hop scene and all that. And those people were around us and doing that stuff and it was amazing. And I'd, I, as much as I kind of wanted to, I knew that that's not what my expression was going to be. Right. And, and so, and it took me a little while to find it, you know? Mm. And I think that I was always hearing things differently to everybody else in that in that sense mm. you know that's so, interesting um so yeah it took me a while to find it and and so in that way going back to my dad he was probably a bit worried about me uh kind of going <laughs> what is this guy up to you know what i mean yeah but equally my dad was a very very open-minded guy right he was very open-minded and i suppose the way that he lived his life he came here in 1972 um in 1973, he was here for a year, and then he met my mum. Uh, it was it was from Preston, and uh, they got married. <laughs> you, you know, uh, and he was very open and accepting in in terms of things like I remember him saying to me very vividly. So my mum's Catholic, my dad was Hindu, practicing Hindu, and he said, "Well, do what you want to do." You know, he said, "If wow. you if you want to go go to church with your mum and see what that's like." And we had puja at home. We had prayers at home. He said his prayers every morning. So we were, we were um, you know, we did Diwali. We did we did the, the festivals, Navrat- Navratri, and all that stuff. So we we were we were privy to both those things. But he never mm. ever said to us, "You've got to be this, or you've got to do it this way, or you've got to do that." Right. And in a way. The Cobblestones and Kitchery record is also about that. Mm. You know, it's also about having hip-hop-esque beats, but with my cousin, uh, you know, singing in a front room, you know, uh, because that is absolutely my experience, <laughs> you know, of mm. growing up. It's mm. like, it's, a, it's, um, it's an experience of both those things. And that's why it's called Kitchery. Kitchery is an Indian dish... A really, really simple Indian dish that you make from red lentils and rice. And you, it's like a dal dish. And we grew up on that. And it was one of mm. my dad's favourite things. You know, and it and it is cobblestone, you know, but we walked to school on cobblestones and we got scraps from the chippy and we went home, you know, and we we went home and, and ate kitchery, you know, and mm. and that was that was my experience of growing up. So it was and, he, and my dad was so open to all of that. He didn't, he was just like, well, you're here, 
make the most of it, uh, but also never forget what our heritage is and never forget who your family are because, you know, Mm. the majority of my family are are obviously uh, Indian. He, He was... He was the youngest of 12, my dad, so we've got these loads of us. Wow. <laughs> That's a so you've got a huge family. Yeah, these loads of us, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, um, I, and I, you know, like, like with all these things, I, I just, um, I hope that if, it, I mean, he, he would listen to this record, he'd be like, what are you, what are you doing, man? This is, this is crazy. <laughs> I joke with my dad, my dad's a... Uh, uh, my dad's a really musical dad and brought me up I was very very lucky as a kid my dad brought me up on a formidable collection of early blues things like on our Hooli records I remember answering in school the question to who who landed on the moon and I was like finally I know the answer to this Louis Armstrong <laughs> yeah. which really is synonymous with my upbringing but my dad played the most. He's got the most wonderful record collection. And in the, in the days, like you said, pr- pr- before streaming, listening to music was hard. And having access to music was hard. So I was so privileged to have it. But my dad has a very simple way of judging, a very simple metric of judging music. Is it funky? Right. <laughs> That's basically it. <laughs> if it's funky, it's good. That's if it's amazing. not funky, it's not good, um, which I always joke to him about. I mean, it goes a bit deeper than that, but it's funny. You know, I was inspired by your record. So I did a record based on your record, Yay! <laughs> which is just awesome, and made it on a tape just like you. And I, and I made it, I guess, inspired by your principles and practices. It was a very free very unpolished record probably the most unpolished record I've ever made really where I just did it I did it in lockdown it was my kind of response to coronavirus Mm. and yeah my dad listening to that was very interesting because (laughs) one thing it isn't is funky (laughs) so again he was like oh son okay oh what kind of music is this you know so uh, yeah I can really get with that dad's listening to your records and uh, drawing some interesting conclusions yeah, I mean, um, which you know, there's, there, I mean, there's loads of stuff in here which is kind of interesting as well about, for for me anyway, which is about Blackburn because there's loads of field recordings from Blackburn. So he had two surgeries in Blackburn. My dad one at Ewood, which is next to the football ground, and then he had another one at Lark Hill, which is now dis- disappeared. It's gone. They've knocked it down. So I kind of went round Blackburn recording these spaces as well. So quite yeah. a lot of you know, the the fundamental kind of textures of the record have come from these field recordings. And I think there's something really interesting about field recording and memory, you know, about going somewhere mm. and listening to a place, listening to the emptiness of the place um, and how that r- resonates with you in terms of kind of... And it's the over-layering of, of things that I find really, really interesting. And actually, Evan Eisenberg talks about when you put a record on a platter, it's like um, it's like overlaying somebody else's uh, presence in your space, in your room. It's like, um, you know, put putting a new reality on the platter and it being an over, overlaying like that. Hmm. So, uh, and I kind of feel that all the time with, with with field recording you know you go uh, and and the newness of it and the the immediacy of it i think is really interesting so like with one of the tracks i recorded 
my uncle in Bombay telling a story about my dad. Um, and then I, I took a field recording from this uh, from Lark Hill where his surgery was, and I overlaid the two things um, because actually, without th- this kind of this connection between them as brothers and the connection between places, because it was my uncle Swaminath who paid, who put my dad on the plane, who paid for his ticket, who who allowed him to be at Lark Hill surgery in the in, right. the, in the end. And I've kind of, you know, and I find I find those connections between sounds really interesting in terms of kind of, uh, 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 you know, really exploring a sense of place, I think, as well. Sorry, I've just become the sun over here. I've, no, I've got no blinds. Yeah, I was quite liking it. It's really, uh, <laughs> it's really abstracted. I can see... I can't go anywhere. So anyway. Yeah, no, it looks great. So I think... To me, this, you know, I'm kind of piecing together a story and the latest thing I heard that you were involved with was the Kick Down the Barriers podcast, which I love. And it's a fantastic listen, so I really encourage everyone to go and check it out. So this is, seems to me very unabstract. So what was the decision behind moving into, into that sort of space where you're more, I mean, you, how would you describe the podcast, um, yeah, the, the podcast is 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 not abstract at all. So um, yeah. with with that work, um, I was commissioned to make that work by um, a, a team of curators at Blackburn Museum, and the story behind it is that there was a panorama. Well, there was two panorama programs. One that was made in two thousand, and now I'll get my dates wrong, but they were ten years apart. And essentially what happened was that they came to Blackburn and they represented Blackburn as being the most segregated town in the country and they spoke to people who live in Worley Range, which was the area that I was working in. Worley Range mm. is the um, the oldest uh, and most established Asian, South Asian community in Blackburn. And then you've got another place at the other side of town, which is called Mill Hill, and uh, they got a bunch of people, and Mill Hill is predominantly white, and they got a bunch of people from both of those places, and they were essentially saying, oh, it's terribly segregated, nobody speaks to each other, this is modern Britain, you know, God. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, good old BBC, let's do a bit more fear-mongering, you know, and I, and there's a lot of people in Blackburn look, watching this thing, going, "What are you talking about? This yeah. is not my experience." I mean, if you take Wally Range for example, there's the the you know they say, "Oh, people can't walk down the street in Wally Range because they're afraid." It's like, mate. I was going to Wally Range from when I was a kid, right, with my mum and dad, who were a mixed-race couple, with two mixed... Uh, who were, you know, interracial couple, with two mixed-race kids, and we were just walking around, going into shops. Everyone loved my mum. Everyone was saying, it's like, what are you talking mm. about? This is not mm. the experience of the majority of people. Anyway, so the idea behind that podcast was essentially to... to um, to counter some of those 
ideas. And it came around the time of the Black Lives Matter stuff. And I think during the Black Lives Matter um, movement and still now, um, I mean, this is an ongoing thing. This isn't just like, you know, oh, we've got a a month of Black Lives Matter and we've got to all think about it. But, you know, this is an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing struggle. It's an ongoing truth that people don't listen to each other and don't take on board each other's realities and each other's stories. And my kind of uh, approach to that was to say, all right, let's let's allow these people to tell us what it is about their experience and what is your experience of growing up in Warley Range in Blackburn? What is that actually like? What is your experience of coming to this country in 1964? What was that actually like for you? You know, what is it that you had to go through to get here? What is it that you had to go through when you arrived? You know, and mm. I don't, I think a lot of the time them stories are lost. So, going back to your question about abstraction, I didn't want to make anything abstract because actually I wanted those people to be able to say the things that they wanted to say. And I wanted also for people to listen to that in a very personal way. Uh, a human being to human being, you know, this is my story, this is what I'm going to say. And actually, there's no place for abstraction there for me at the moment. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean to say that I that uh, at some point I'm gonna I'm thinking about taking that material and doing something more poetic with it because actually that speaks again in a different register. It talks to different mm. people in a different way. It allows people to experience things in a in a new in a new way through through kind of maybe the abstraction of sound or, f- or again field recordings or montage or whatever but yeah. actually in that first instance for me it was the stories that were important mm. uh, and the other thing about those recordings or those uh, podcasts is that everything in them has been chosen by the people that I was working with. So the original idea before COVID was to do the interviews and then to sit down and teach people how to put these things together in workshops Mm. in the museum. Uh, And again, to just empower people to go, you know what, it doesn't have to be these... uh, these big media institutions who who have the control over your voice, you can do this quite simply and easily and and control your own narrative. And and, and actually, because of COVID, there was some compromise to that in terms of me having to sit at home and do it. Um, But equally... As I'm working through these things, and and actually, sound like a broken record is pretty similar, in terms mm. of me going, you know what? Are you all right with this? Is this okay for me to say yeah. this in this way? You know what? What? What do you want out of it? Mm. Um, uh, in terms of the dialogue between us and the way that we uh, present your story to a wider public, uh, and. For in the in the main, you know, you sound like a broken record. Stuff is really abstract, but again, um, I think that's about words. Sometimes aren't enough to capture emotion. Yeah, yeah, I, I can totally resonate with that. My first experience of music was growing up with my older disabled sister Sarah, and. She was so profoundly disabled that she couldn't walk or talk, but she could hear, and the the way to communicate with Sarah was through music. So when we played 
John Coltrane, Michael Jackson, Billie Jean. She really experienced that depth of emotion and joy in a way that you couldn't communicate with Sarah in any other way. So growing up with this old, older, older sister, and you're born, you know, when you're a child, you're born into a situation, you don't know what it's like to be born into another one. You've not developed empathy really yet. You're just in your story. And that's, that's it. You don't think too much about it as a kid. No. So I was born into that environment, and that just was. It just was. It wasn't sad that I had a disabled sister. I ha- I, that was my sister. In the same way that I always say to people with siblings, do you miss the third brother, the fourth sister, <laughs> that you didn't have? And they're like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? I'm like, exactly, because it just is. You don't miss children that your parents didn't have as siblings. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. So, of course. so I was born into this environment, this, this situation, and it was, ad- it was profoundly obvious to me from the very beginning that music is the most important thing in the world because it represents the purest form of communication. It somehow bypasses something. I don't know what, I don't know if there's any scientific evidence of this. This is just, this is just my, my, you know, my five-year-old brain working it out. But something in this does this and it's profoundly important and that's what I want to do. So I completely can understand that idea that the power of music is you can say things that words can't reach. Um, so I'm really feeling you there with yeah, that. And... I, 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 that's absolutely right. I mean, it's absolutely true. I, and I think what I'm also trying to do, I think, is it, on, on the side of that, is that is to kind of start with the the it, especially with the kick down the barriers thing, is to start mm. with the mode of communication that everybody gets. You know, yeah. Because actually, that's the that's the mode of communication in that sense that is missing. You know, in terms of people just talking to each other, and and all my work kind of starts with an interview. <laughs> you know, talking yeah. to someone. What's it like to to feel like this? What's it? What what's your what's your relationship with this record? You know, and tell yeah. me about that. Um, and yeah. and it's that kind of experience that then leads on to. Um, it, I suppose the translation of that experience into yeah. some kind of sonic material, and it doesn't yeah. matter to me particularly what that sonic material is. Does that make sense? It just has to mm. feel right, mm. you, you know. And and mm. and I think I'm lucky in that respect because I, I don't because I don't come from a musical background. Let's say where I've I'm trying to make stuff to sell records or make stuff to be uh, for my career. Yeah. Do, do yeah. you know what I mean? I, it, mm. I do things because they feel good. <laughs> like, yeah. You yeah, know? yeah. And, it, and it feels like I need to make that thing at that particular moment in time. Mm. And, th- and that's pretty much it. And I, and I try and make it as honestly in terms of how I feel about it as I possibly can. You know, yeah. like um, in 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 all its iterations, in you know, as I as I work through it, I'm just trying to be as honest to the way that I feel about it and what I think that it that that feeling should sound like. You know, yeah. In terms of 
the communication of it, you know, um, and and especially for the Cobblestones record, it was very much about um, writing, uh, also writing, but kind of this this idea of liminal spaces, merging spaces, places, objects, you know, skew, sk- skewed repetition, uh, unremembered voices, things that move and are fragile, timbres rather than actual words, like the way that things move and drift across worlds, you know, trying to fight with this idea of, of presence and absence, um, you know, and and the the way that those threads kind of come together, uh, you know, I'm re- really interested in this idea of rhizomatic movement. You know, things like sprouting up from other things and energies uh, coalescing in one place and then sprouting sprouting a creative idea or whatever. And Blackburn's part of that, and my mm. experience of hip hop's part of that, and all these records behind me are part of that, and every sound on them is part of that, and every memory is part of that and i think you know there's there's always fragility in the retelling and there's always fragility in in the way in which we hear you know mm. and our perception of hearing so um and i think that that connects both you know both the 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 abstract more abstract stuff that i do and and the and the kit down the barriers stuff you know yeah um because and you see, you talked about this yesterday, didn't you? It's like you know we love stories, we love narratives, we love telling stories, yeah. and uh, and I'm just quite lucky, I suppose, that I can play. And again, it's about playing, right? Yeah, it's about playing. I, you know, yeah. I, I took on the kit down the barriers stuff, and I went, what do I want to do with this? Well, I'm I've just done the cobblestones and Kitchery record, and I've done all this. You know, I've done no input mixing on it, and I've played with records, and I've done i've made like 20 tape loops and had them playing at the same time and i've done all that stuff and I, and then i thought well actually i just want to get back down to talking to people again so i'm going to do that <laughs> <laughs> it's like the second album isn't it you came out of the traps with this crazy record of yeah no input mixing and madness and then and then album two is like a straight up pop record <laughs> where you're talking but no I love it. And, and to me, what comes across is the generosity of your art and how committed you are to your local environment, to, to exploring, yeah, memory and identity. And to me, your art seems so generous. It's such a giving practice. And that was interesting to take that back to the first question I asked you, where it stems from such an individual practice and such what we'd call a deep dive into your world to me, communicates as a very generous art form in the way that it tells both your and many people's stories. So I'm going to lead you now into a very interesting space, which is really about the role of being creative and and the role of being a creative in today's political system. And we're talking now against the backdrop of a conservative advert campaign suggesting that we retrain in cyber, (laughs) whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. And I wondered about your thoughts about being a creative 
about the time we grew up in and the time the next generation is growing up in and what you really thought about creativity's role in, in this Wow, that, I mean, it's such a big question, Matt, isn't it? I mean, like, it's, it's a really, really massive, massive question. Um, well, I find it fascinating that the thing, one of the key aspects of Britishness we celebrated in the 2012 Olympics, which is our window into what it means to be British. Yeah. We saw a huge window into what it means to be Chinese yeah. in their... Olympic ceremony and mm. one of the key components of our ceremony was our creativity mm. NHS and creativity yeah, yeah. were the two things really showcased about Britishness and then suddenly eight years later ah get rid of all of that yeah but I think you know you, you Danny Boyle was part of was obviously the the lead uh, on that and um yeah if, more than likely from his perspective he was going this is my chance to celebrate this stuff mm. so um i think if it comes from some other kind of institution then maybe that kind of uh, way of looking at it is different right um in terms of um the government's uh I, 2012 is 2012 i think things fundamentally and profoundly changed in 2016 yeah and I think we've had half a... I mean, there's always been... Um, uh, a willing degradation of the arts. There's always been a movement towards STEM subjects in terms of kind of, you know, it's um, the, the apparent value of those things. Uh, and I think that's always been there. But since... For the last few years, I think that's... that's you know, the, just the degradation of... of um, of creative processes, creative spaces, creative people's uh, livelihoods, uh, and and the access to creativity for kids, you know, yeah. Um, over the last ten years, in in the community, I mean, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about community centres and places where people can go and do interesting things. Um, so yeah, um, I don't know what what we particularly. I think we just got to keep fighting for the spaces to do that. And I think educational establishments, whether or not they be universities or FE colleges, or I, d I don't think schools so much have got the space to do that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I've never taught in a school, so I'm kind of making, in a way, making it up. But I do know what kids are like who come from schools because I teach them immediately. You know, they leave and do the GCSEs and then they come to, come to us straight away. So I've kind of got a bit of a inkling about the way in which they approach their education and the and the skills. How would you say that is? How would you say that, that this generation do approach their education? And, and what do you see coming out of schools? Um... I don't see a lot of critical thinking. Yeah. I know that much for for an absolute fact. You know, um, the process of critical analysis about um, understanding the context of something, about asking questions about it um, and working it out for yourself uh, and being um, happy to give an opinion um, in terms of one that's based in evidence <laughs> is And that's about voice, isn't it? That's He's about having a voice. Yeah, I also think it's about saying, you know, well, if you've looked at something on the internet, I, I think 
we're kind of straying off the creative question into a different question a little bit, but um, my um, kind of idea is that when kids look at something on the internet and they only do that in a very uh, surface way, they then turn around and go, I've done some research. Mm. You know, well, what research have you done? Well, I, look, I, I looked it up and I found five links. Woo! Right? <laughs> You go, did you read any of them? Where did they come from? Uh, and they can't answer that question. So this idea of researching, if you and it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying the other day, investment in time and energy into something yeah. that you love, right? And yeah. we talked about this yesterday. You wanted to be a metal fan. You had to go to the yeah. record shop. You had to find out what the records were. You had to speak to people about it. You had to take the time and the effort to invest your energy and your time into working out what it was about that thing that you loved, right? Yeah. Going and buying magazines or whatever it might have been. Yeah. So all those paratexts, those external yeah. texts that explain that thing. Now, I'm not mm. saying that all kids don't do that, but it would seem to me, from what I see, that very surface scratching of um, the uh, of your stuff is, is okay with them. Um, yeah. They don't really get deep into stuff, you know. And I think there's this point of algorithm as well, you know. So you dis the discovery of stuff by accident, I think, is a really important thing that we've lost or that we're losing. Mm. Mm. That also uh, kind of falls into this idea of creativity because uh, how to be creative with the things that are around you? Well, if you've not really got a lot of things around you, you need to be really imaginative with the things that are around you to make to make them interesting, you know? Uh, mm. But if you've got access to everything, everything's kind of boring. Yeah. Yeah, I think as an educator as well, I work at the University of Westminster as a course leader for music. When we, are lo we were looking at moving into an online educational space... So we now offer it, we're off, off, offering a sort of hybrid model now where we do some physical teaching and some online teaching. And doing some research into new educational thinking, I came across this amazing concept that I'd never encountered before. And it was called connectivism. So in educational theory, we are all very familiar with behaviorism. So the famous study of that was Pavlov's dogs where they gave the dogs food and every time they gave them food, they rang a bell. And then eventually they could just ring the bell and the dogs would salivate. So that's your typical education model of trying to manipulate people into a certain way of behaving, hence behaviorism. And then there was other educational philosophies called constructivism, which is essentially building or scaffolding knowledge. Mm. So moving into a better space, I think, we probably agree on that <laughs> the ringing bells and or you know hitting kids with sticks or smacks or whatever mm. and the latest idea that i came across which i just adored was called connectivism and that's this notion that we are no longer as educators transmitters of knowledge because there is just too much knowledge to have we can't possibly contain the amount of knowledge needed and there's so many multiple pathways coexisting that are accessible so connectivism is a theory of essentially helping learners build on research cultures and finding their own knowledge 
And as educators, we are helping learners disseminate information mm. through critical thinking and understanding the motives and the value of that knowledge and the validity of that knowledge and encouraging learners to become part of their world, to become sharers and participants in their cultures mm. by starting blogs and retweeting people and following people. And I just love this idea. And it, it resonated so much with me being a musician. And the follow-on from that is allow in exams and schools, allow laptops and search engines and help the kids understand information rather than basing it on some prehistoric model where people that can remember facts are clever. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, and I don't think that can start early enough. And I think that's part of the problem, that actually there is um, probably um, too much emphasis on regurgitation of information. And also, you know, like you say, kids not going, what information do I need right now for this? Rather than mm. saying, "Tell me the information that I need, please," you know, mm. which which as, as I think also happens, and I think you know, and it's been for me also, um, it's been a recurring thing constantly that if kids get their information through media channels, then they should be taught media literacy from day one. I think that that mm. is a massive fundamental flaw in any education system. You know, in the same way that you taught English or maths as a fundamental mm. part of your, you know, way of accessing the world, people should be media literate. They should be taught mm. the the mechanizations of the media really, really early on. Because I think mm. it will make everybody's lives better, <laughs> you know, yeah. in terms of how we access information, why we access it in that way and making better decisions about um, the things that we, that we, that we engage with, you know? Mm. So, um, and, and I think that probably does kind of resonate with your idea of creativity, mm. you know, I think it does probably uh, connect in some ways with this idea of saying, well, if you understand that actually the creative process is very much at work in all of the things to a greater or lesser degree that you are engaging with, a musical creativity, you know, or a filmic creativity or a visual creativity or a fashion creativity, if you, if you know that there's those processes of choice, of... Um, working through ideas development of ideas about communicating things all that can come from a from a media literacy kind of uh, mm. syllabus and so we'll connect to this idea that that kids or people can then value the work that goes into some of the things that they engage with on a day-to-day -day basis um mm. and kind of figure figure out that actually there's massive work there <laughs> You know, yeah, there's a massive amount of work there and a massive amount of uh, of thinking, which perhaps is uh, is is maybe lost in the uh, in the in the general kind of uh, idea that these are arty farty um, Mickey Mouse subjects where you swing cameras around on ropes and and, yeah. uh, and and go and have a pint and laugh about it, you know, and you kind of yeah. Which is perhaps, and I mean, again, 
maybe I'm generalising too much, but perhaps that's the way that people have been asked to think about uh, some s- some creative practices, you know. Yeah. And I also think that we don't engage with the complexity of the human condition enough. Yeah. <laughs> Gen- generally. Human yeah. beings are beautifully weird, interesting, massively complex things, creatures. Yeah. And so therefore their expressions can be that. And it's valid for them to be that. And mm. I think that the current um, misinformation or at least um, polarisation of the political discourse, the simplicity of the polit- political discourse, um, pushes us away from the understanding of human complexity. And that then pushes us away from the idea that creativity, in order to express that complexity, is important. Yeah. Because yesterday we talked. We're, God. We're, we're, we're constantly thinking in terms of black and whites instead of mm. nuances and greys. Yeah. And every shade um, of grey. Yeah. And I really got that from listening to your podcast, hearing those stories just brings to life an understanding of the human condition in a way that not hearing those stories would do. But what I was going to say was going back to a, a thing we talked about yesterday as well about, you said to me that you fell out of the hip-hop world, the hip-hop scene, when hip-hop became bling. And uh, I don't know whether I mis, uh, misrepresented no, that. No, no. But hip-hop was a very political power and... I was never a big hip-hop fan, but I love Public Enemy and I love the soundscapes of the Bomb Squad. Yeah, yeah. And adore even... I would listen to that as a political act. But I, too, was very interested in overt political musics, but came at it more from Rage Against the Machine and UK rave music. And what I was going to ask you was, what role do you think abstract music, such as the music that both you and I make, has as a political movement, as a political statement? Why are we making these soundscapes and abstract things in such an overtly political time, do you think? Well, I I think it kind of goes back to the end of my previous answer, really. Which is about, I think, homogenization is definitely um, very overt at the moment. The homogenization of high streets, right? The homogenization of uh, the monopolies of uh, communication through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, the the homogenization of shopping through Amazon, the the homogenization of looks, right, um, and the homogenization of view, left is this and right is this, and you know yeah. it's very polarized and very simplified. And actually, I think that if you open yourself up to listening to very different forms of music or very different kind of world views or talking to people in a complex way i think that or reading you know the the fact that 
and I know these kind of I learned so much through academia, I've got to say, and I know I'm not kind of part of the academic world at the moment in terms of writing papers and uh, and doing research in that formal way, but I learned so much about about the way that people could, that we can think about the world. And, Me too. And Me en- too. and engage with it, you know. And yeah. people don't engage, or, or th- there is again a shift away from expertise at the moment. I would suggest, yeah which I think is also important. And I think that a lot of the things that we do, if you talk to the people who who make interest, uh, uh, who make abstract music um, or experimental music or whatever, not only are they doing that, but the quite a lot of them are, are reading and thinking and talking mm. to one another and, and evolving ideas from philosophical concept. Mm. In 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 many many uh, a lot of the people that I speak to are doing that anyway. You know, yeah. There's an underlying um, knowledge base in philosophy, which then leads to the expression of those philosophical ideas through kind of sonic creation. And in terms of that, I think that philosophical thought has to be political because it thinks it, it tries to understand the the whys and wherefores about why we do what we do and why the systems that in which we live exist in the way that they exist so mm. if if that's the base point for you to translate that into some kind of creation then it's then it's definitely definitely a political act yeah yeah, does that, does that make uh, sense, or was that like? No, absolutely. And your work is very much about identity, story, and belonging. And I agree with you. Like when you said that understanding someone's story can take. Well, going back to your the why you're doing your podcast, you saw a representation of Blackburn on the BBC that didn't resonate with your experience being Mm. from Blackburn Mm. on your upbringing. So then you used art to communicate a different story. And this really resonates into the polarisation of the internet as a new form Mm. because the beginning of the internet felt like it offered so much. It, It gave us the means of distribution to everyone. Yeah, yeah. So you could never have asked for more power. But interestingly, what's happened, and this is really shown in the long tail theory. I don't know if you've come across yeah, yeah, the long yeah. tail. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very very famous from the dude who did, did The Wire. Is it someone Kelly? And the long tail, for those that don't know it, allows for much more access to art forms and ideas that would have died in a more funneled system. So, for example, your record and my record would not probably have graced the cassette shelves of HMV. Definitely not, man. (laughs) (laughs) But yet, they are findable and buyable online. But what's so interesting about the long tail is while it's given rise to more, 
What seems to have happened is that blockbusters and the Ed Sheerans and the Taylor Swifts have just got bigger. So rather than creating a culture of more diversity, it's created, as you said, a more homogenised culture because hits sort of seem to be have never been bigger. Yeah, well, yeah, but, I, I, you know, I don't... In a way, I don't think that's surprising when the internet is basically fueled by advertising revenue. Mm. You know, so it's exactly the same as having... Um, you, do you want your advert on during Coronation Street? Yeah, well, it's going to cost you 70 grand. Okay. So uh, if it's going to cost you 70 grand, then the person who's making, I don't know, who's got the independent bakery down the road can't advertise, right? But Hovis can. There you yeah. go. Because they can afford it. So, but if the if the model of of getting your stuff out there on the internet to the majority of people is based on that principle of paying for advertising, then the the big the big boys are always going to win. Mm. And who are the big boys now? Well, <laughs> that's that Facebook, like... Google, Apple. Yeah. Well. So yeah. I mean, but still, uh, you know, and this is the this is the positive and the hope that. That which you kind of always hold on to is the fact that the internet has allowed us to to reconnect. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, right? in in this way, in a really meaningful way, interestingly yeah. meaningful, positive way, and it's also given rise to the idea. I mean, let's take the Cobblestones and Kitchery record, right? I, I when I'd finished it, I had no idea what to do with it. I just right. I'd, I'd done this stuff. I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, what am I going to do? Do I put it out? Anyway, I sent it to a few people who, who were friends of mine. And one of the people that I sent it to was Graham Dunning, who runs Fractal Meat. And then he went, yeah, I'll put it out. And I was like, mate, mind blown. Seriously? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. That's yeah. so cool, right? And actually, without the internet, yeah, that would never have happened. I would never have met him yeah. in the first place, right? And that whole process would never have happened. So I think, yes, it's hmm. it's been compromised by capital in terms of its um, in terms of its the, the ideals that it was set out to achieve as as a as a sharing of information, free uh, in egalitarian space for everybody to work. I mean, that's obviously been compromised by capital. There's no doubt about that. However, there are spaces there which allow people to to make and create and be um and to and to and, and to speak uh kind of in in a true true or untrue way but yeah i mean with anything isn't it? it's about balance man i think um you know there's lots of great things and and on a personal level there's lots of great things but i but i also you know i hate the internet too because it does my head in yeah. <laughs> Never a true word. <laughs> yeah, we again we uh, we yeah. touched on that yesterday, didn't we? How capitalism seems to be this ever-growing Pac-Man that consumes everything and regurgitates it as another product to to buy into. Yeah, whether it's any kind of form and the internet again we were talking yesterday that to even belong to these communities of practice i can't imagine 
not being able to do it with the internet, not having to be part of that system. And that's why I called this podcast Play in the System, because yes. of, of that essential... How big is that space in the system for play? And is it possible to play out the system? Is it possible to not be part of this dangerous social media environment? Yeah, I think you touched... But the- still connect... I, I don't I don't think it is these days and that's a scare that mm. is scary. Yeah. That is really scary, isn't it? Mm. That actually it's um it's one hundred percent necessary mm. to use a system which uh, I personally have massive problems with um in many instances, but you can't but to separate yourself from it is to maybe separate yourself from opportunity. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, what 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 was that? What what else was I going to do with that record? You know, like it's, you know, taking it back to a personal thing. It, what would it have done? Sat on my hard drive forever. Mm, yeah. And then what? I mean, great. That's fine. But it's nice the the it's nice that it's gone somewhere and there's an opportunity there. You know, which yeah. I, I wouldn't have got if I wasn't. Uh, in that space in some way but I suppose then it's about choosing your spaces I think that the mm. scary thing for me is you know that I, I I don't know this this probably something that exists I don't know if you know that, that if if there is but is there another social media media kind of gathering site which is outside of Facebook which has got more more of an ethical kind of uh, way of being than Facebook does that isn't quite so questionable I don't know. Mm. Uh, if there isn't, then I'm sure that there must be, man. Uh, but again, it's like, how, how, why do we not know about it, you know? Yeah, maybe this is the space that will open up. Now we're starting to recognise the ethics of social media. Yeah, and I think things are going to change In the same way we well recognise the ethics of banking. and Yeah, yeah I, I mean, things are going to change as well, aren't they? Because people can't get together in the pub anymore. Yeah, or or aren't going to be able to for the foreseeable future, or for however long it might be. So yeah, you know, I think the platforms are going to have to may, maybe change, or I don't know. I'd I'd, I'd love uh, there probably is, and it's something for me to look for. But yeah, I'd love a space outside of Facebook for us for people to to chat. I'd love an Instagram that wasn't uh, driven by. Their... Owned by Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or just, yeah. I mean, Instagram was great. I mean, it wasn't it brilliant when it started. Instagram? It was great. Yeah. It was just yeah. brilliant. You know, no adverts. And basically, if I followed you, I'd see every picture that you that you took, yeah. and it was like it was really brilliant. You know, it was a, and it did feel like a real community. Now it just feels like I'm entering into an advertise an advertiser's dream to kind of make sure that I know what's going on with, I don't know, my brother or whatever. It's so weird, man. (laughs) But that is, that's capitalism, isn't it? And that's the, we talked about this yesterday as well, the neoliberal agenda that, that we're part of. Let's just imagine we started Instagram and we ran it for 10 years and it was this space and then it was very popular and then someone came along and said, hey, Paul, hey, Matt. I want to buy this. Mm. And 
they're offering. I mean, who? What? What would Facebook have paid for it? I mean, the, the sums are so large, I can't even guess. Was it not like one point two billion or something? One point. What would you do? Man, you you know what I'd do. We'd sell, right? We'd take the one point two billion, and probably think, great, we can. You know bring bring do, back man. community spaces for art and yeah yeah I would that's that yeah and I'd buy some equipment <laughs> <laughs> and then your music wouldn't be very good anymore <laughs> you'd make a glossy third album um, I'd actually get yeah. something that works that that's what I'd do yeah <laughs> it would ruin the vibe or it would ruin the vibe of your music but I did think and it's a good question so I am a millionaire what would I do and I realised that. I'm very fortunate that my life would be not that different other than I'd be working for my own education business, teaching people. Yeah. And I'd have some time ring fence to my own art and actually my day-to-day life would be very similar, probably more stressful because I'd then be the owner of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But I felt very fortunate to to come to that realisation. And I, and I do wonder... This is a perennial question as an educator is what is the difference that we experience going to education without paying fees versus graduating now with such high levels of debt? What does that do to the soul? What does that do to what we both recognise, the value of play? Mm. And bringing that to my experience of being an advert media composer, Mm. under that pressure, play felt very much like something that should be thrown off the ship wasteful Mm. commercially wasteful but we realize that it's commercially valuable so yeah many uh, many fears and thoughts there but like you i i remain optimistic and there are many great things that have come out of the internet and hopefully even this political time we're in yeah i mean i i I think so i mean the the world has been through Awful, awful times, hasn't it? Re- really terrible, tragic, awful times. And, um, you know, it's a wave, man. It's a wave. Yeah. It's a wave. <laughs> I love that. It, it'll, it'll um, yeah, exactly, your wavescape stuff. It will. And it, yeah, yeah. at some point, it'll reach its peak and it'll crash and then something, something else needs to happen. And I think what we need to be kind of aware of or what I need to be aware of or what I'm trying to think about being aware of is at the point when that that crash happens and the void uh, exists to do something really positive with that and to and to make sure that we um we use it we use the the knowledge of this negativity this constant yeah. negativity that we're in um to do to to kind of flip that and do something really positive with it and to try and bring people together or to or, or to change um change the way we think about one another and i think that's that's fundamentally it the 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 you know since 2016 for me it's about we, we've been asked some people have gone down the road but we've been asked to think about people in a negative way we've been we've been asked to blame each other for things we've been asked to to point the finger and to scapegoat people on, on all different sides. I'm not talking about any side here. I'm talking about on all different sides, just as a general way of being in the world. That's what we've been kind of asked to do. 
and uh, and I think if that crashes, at what point that crashes, we need to look at that really seriously and go, actually, let's let's think about each other differently again. Let's think about each other as as brothers and sisters rather than as people people who who make my life difficult, right? Which yeah. which it seems to me that's that's the pervading kind of uh, feeling of since 2016 that's kind of what I get anyway but that's a great end end game point <laughs> I love it lovely place to end well Paul thank you so much for thank taking you. the no, time honestly, to man, come on like so thank you so much for asking me to do it you know um, I'm, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and um, it's, uh, like, yeah just thank, thanks so much for having me on and, uh, and spending the time to, to chat like top stuff really brilliant thank you so it's much it's been incredible to reconnect after 20 years yeah 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 amazing well you have a lovely day I would be looking forward best. to the next record <laughs> yeah there is this there's, there's something in the pipeline there's definitely something in the pipeline yeah in fact i'm uh, doing something with um an ex-student of mine who's a uh, can i swear on here is that all right? Yeah, you can swear. All right. So it, Danny, um, who's an ex-student of mine from Blackburn, uh, he was in a band called Crywank, uh, <laughs> who, who, are ama- who were amazing. They've disbanded. You can't not be amazing with that name. Yeah, they're totally brilliant. I, I, I honestly recommend people to go and check them out if they can. Uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And the guy that I, I initially was talking about, who kind of turned me on to the William Burroughs stuff, Brian Nicholson. So uh, we've got our heads together and we're trying to do something which is basically about nonsense. So this whole conversation, actually, not that it's nonsense, no. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> no, this this kind of whole idea at the moment about uh, misinformation, about spreading disinformation, about nonsense, people just talking lies. You know, just basically blatantly lying and going, no, I'm not lying. You're like, well, you're lying. Yesterday you said that, and now you say, no, 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 I'm not. You know, that whole that whole uh, kind of um, nonsense thing that we're in. It's nonsense, right? So we're, um, we're doing something which plays with that idea um, by... Guess what? Chopping up records, right? So, uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that, that's that's hopefully on its way. We're just uh, we're just trying to trying to put that together at the moment. Like Brian wow. writes these amazing uh, kind of nonsense reviews of albums that don't exist. So um, we're we're making them. That's right. That's essentially that what sounds- we're doing. So again, like a very playful, you know. Again, yeah. very playful. So. Yeah, love it. Well, thank you again. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. It's been brilliant hanging out with you this morning. Yeah, cool, man. My pleasure. All the very best. And one day, I hope to see you again. Who knows? In the flesh, but who knows? Let's not <laughs> let's not hang around for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. See man. you, Paul. Have a great day.